Off the ball's the best, number one. It's the GOAT of sports apps. Talk about the greatest of all time. Big Joe's the greatest of all time. He's the GOAT. We know it. <laughs> I, I'm going to say I'm the Djokovic of this scenario. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Download the OTB Sports app now. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in for John Malloy until seven. Time now for the Sunday paper review. Delighted to be joined by the Sunday World Sports writer Roy Curtis and the former Irish World Champion rower Niall O'Toole. Lads, you're very welcome. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. You both know each other. We do. We do. I was Roy was this lunatic guy that was writing about basketball, which nobody no knew about at the time. And does anybody know about basketball? Uh, there's there's one or two. We actually we grew up. <laughs> no, I was, you, I was, you you used to write about basketball. So you, he, Roy, of course, was the intellectual giant of Terenure. Nobody else kind of could write or even read at the around our area. So so this was the yeah this is what we all aspire to. If I was the intellectual titan, it was uh, wasn't setting very high standards. We actually we played together for a year uh, on football team called Larkview and uh, our sporting trajectory followed a fairly similar path afterwards. He won a world championship and became an Olympian. I have a Division 3A medal with uh, Archibald Audio. <laughs> it was that, it was, you know, it was the inspiration playing with you in Larkview. In, in Larkview. Enough already. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get to cover then, Niall, when he was winning all these world titles? No, you were. No, I didn't. Um, we kind of, yeah. We're saying like, we met outside, I'd say it's probably the first time we've seen each other for 35 years. Wow. Yeah. You it's know. very emotional. Brought it together, is, brought is, together by know. News Talking Off The Ball. It still has Sunday paper yeah. review. Who'd have known? Who'd have, who'd have thunk it? It still owes me 20 euros. <laughs> 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 well, very. pounds or shillings, was it? Yeah. <laughs> punts, punts. It was the WB8s, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. or the, you know, then it became Daniel O'Connell. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, look, uh, you're very welcome to the Sunday paper review. Lots to get through. So much great sport. I think this is the best weekend sport, lads, this yeah. year. You know, this is absolutely it's fantastic. isn't it, really? Um, Sunday Times, Shane Larry in the front, keep the faith, Larry still in the hunt at Augusta, and Guardiola, we must conquer Europe to be considered great, and glorious farewell, Sam Whaley-Cohen winning the Grand National. The Sunday Independent Sport, National Express, so shell-shocked Emma Mullins saddles a 50-1 winner, and Klopp issues a rallying call for titles D-Day. The biggest game in world football is live here in News Talk, Stephen Doyle and Brian Kerr from Half Four. We have the back of the sun, Sam's grand farewell deuce. The Sam Whaley Cohen on his last ever ride as an amateur won the Grand National, first amateur since 1990 to win the big race. And disgrace De Gea lays into United flops after the defeat to Everton yesterday. And we also have Pep and uh, Hendo just previewing the match today. We have the Sunday World, Roy's paper there. Uh, four than a feeling, the quadruple's on for Mo Salah, who insists Liverpool should hold on to their grand quadruple dream. Noble winner, about Noble Yates, and the dubs going to Portugal for a summer camp as they try to um, reset ahead of the championship. We also have a championship pullout, which we'll get to with Roy later on. Road to, road to Croker, cliff top on David Clifford. We have the back of the mirror on a Sunday. Klopp's pep up. So Jurgen Klopp, Boss driven by obsession to beat best boss Guardiola. Also, Gordon's high, De Gea's low for the Everton victory yesterday. And City and Real fight for Haaland. No surprise, a transfer story in the back of the tabloids. We have the Irish Daily Mail on Sunday. Disgrace. De Gea condemns own team after United crumbled at Everton. And Ten Hag lines up Van Persie as coach, but still worried about the job. Will he maybe Balk at taking this job which I think is a poison chalice at the moment anyway power backing Larry to finish uh, with a fight at the Masters Philip Quinn is over there riding for the Daily Mail and Jonathan Wilson's always good in the Observer on a Sunday 
Who wins battles of Kerb Foden or Alexander Arnold could be decisive in this glorious engineering match that we're going to see at half four between Liverpool and City. Um, by the way, folks, if you're you know you can listen on News Talk, you can also watch us on the digital and social channels for Periscope and Twitter at Off the Ball YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. And to finish the Sunday Business Post, it got a profile of Tiger Woods and Barry White back on course as Tiger returns to Augusta 17 months after last playing there we know he had the car crash last year Roy I suppose there's no better place to start than this game I can't wait for at half four City and Liverpool it's just this is this is to me the best of managers the best of football whatever you think about what money in football and all that kind of thing what we're going to see in the pitch today is going to be special in my view Yeah you've indisputably the two best teams in the world you've indisputably the two best managers in the world and they're contrasting, they're both similar and contrasting personalities I find absolutely fascinating. Jonathan Liu had a, a wonderful line, I thought, in The Guardian yesterday, where he said that Klopp gets that football is not real life. Guardiola gets that actually it kind of is. Um, I know Noel has uh, spoke eloquently about elite sportsmen being like drug addicts. And Guardiola has that addiction to perfection, the pursuit of perfection. He'll win a game 5-0 and be unhappy. He'll draw a game nil all and come away and feel satisfied because his vision of what's going on, this chess grandmaster vision. Klopp is a far more outgoing, megawatt personality with that beaming smile. And I think he's the perfect fit for Liverpool. You have this, Liverpool is a city that's geographically of the United Kingdom, of England, but that culturally, socially, politically thinks of itself as an independent entity almost. And they don't look to Downing Street, particularly post-Thatcher, for leadership. It's the guy who sits in the dugout in Anfield is their sort of cultural so leader. So Roy Hodgson wasn't a fit for that, no, whereas Klopp is. Klopp, Klopp rises to it. He, has, he gets it. He has emotional intelligence. He sort of politically leans to the left, which is very much Liverpool feeling. And he has this huge charisma that leads men, that inspires men. Niall's a Liverpool fan. I'm not. But I root for Klopp because he's just one of these guys that... Seems to, seems to get life in a, in a great way. I mean, I remember during COVID when he said, you know, football is not the most important thing, but it's the most important of the non-important things. And I think that's really appropriate now when you see what's happening, the terrible things happening in Ukraine, that we say sport doesn't matter. But you know what? It really does. It reminds us, it gives us a chance to be happy, to hug. It reminds us of our humanity, I think, when you get days like this where people come together and I think Klopp as a, a manifestation of that, as a leader of people, as an inspiring figure in dark times, is very hard to beat. It's funny, it's, it's like the great coaches of, of, of my life. It's not really, listen, we all know, in, especially in rowing, you know, you know the perfect technique, you know, you know it's, it's binary, you do the data, you do the work and, and, and you get the results. So it's very, very, uh, it's, it's kind of rigid and uh, you, you get in, or you get out what you put in. But what makes the difference is it's it's not about what a coach says. It's how they make you feel is really the difference. And yeah, they can they inspire you, they lead you, and uh, that's what that's what Klopp has. He makes You'd the love he, to play he for really him, yeah he really touches you inside. Mm-hmm. You the, the players must feel something, uh, and they they definitely play for him. And uh, yeah. So he's an extraordinary, uh, yeah, he's an extraordinary leader and coach. Yes, in the Sunday Times today, Jonathan Orcroft's article, Gone are the authoritarians, the best managers are now the charismatic teachers. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I do think it's changed in Ferguson's era of control. I think, I think, this. I think, John, like the best, you're in your, you're in your, you're in your best performance state in this relaxed, focused attention. 
And if you have a coach that you're worried or, or scared about over your shoulder, that if I miss this pass or I don't make this whatever, excuse my, my, my football, uh, my footballing terms aren't the best, but if you have that playing with that pressure on your shoulder and you're always worried about failing, you need to be on that cusp of, of actually failing and not worried about it. And Klopp frees them all the, of all of that. They, they play with a freedom and again, they're not worried. They know they're not going to get the hairdryer, you know, that kind of way. They're going to get their arm on the shoulder and they're going to be able to play to their limits. And uh, yeah, this this fear hairdryer stuff that's all gone and if anybody thinks that a, a player is playing at their optimum when they're scared they're just not you need to be in that loose frame of mind I, I think there's a coaching intelligence to both guys I mean they have they both have huge aura but if you look at the, the football is innovative it's revolutionary it's high tempo played at you know the speed of light and I think what's particularly impressive is how they keep their players happy they revolve, they've, they've both got big squads and you almost never hear of an unhappy player. I mean, the capacity to continually coax the best mm. out of absurdly wealthy guys. Yeah. I mean, look at Manchester United. They're a study in dysfunction. Since Ferguson left in 2013, the fall has been spectacular. He held that club together. And I always think, you know, you have a sliding doors moment. Ferguson went to meet Guardiola to potentially get him. Imagine United with Klopp. He would have changed everything. Um, we live in the era of the manager, of the leader. We've seen mm. Jim Gavin at Dublin, what he did. When Jim left, just that slight slippage, and suddenly Dublin are back in the pack. Um, one guy sets a ten, and I think, I think a key one, if you asked any Liverpool or Manchester City fan today, would they prefer, if they, if they were given an option, you have to lose Mo Salah or Jurgen Klopp, you have to lose Kevin De Bruyne or Pep Guardiola. I think... 95%, certainly of Liverpool fans, mm. would go with Klopp. And I think a significant majority. I don't think Guardiola is quite as loved. He's hugely admired, but I don't think he's quite as loved. But I still think City fans would be loath to lose him. And it's interesting, this could be more the beginning of the end because you know, Klopp's been there since 15, Guardiola's been there since 16, yeah. you know, to be at the top. And I, I, I do think both these teams could come back to the pack. You know when they both go, yeah. but I suppose the thing about it is, is their organisations are so slick. Everything is geared towards the success, whereas with United from the top, it's the opposite. Yeah. In terms of the writing, in terms of anything that we've seen in the Sunday papers that you like about this game today? Yeah, I, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Jonathan Norcroft, and I, I think he's uh, I think he's a wonderful writer. But he um, he goes into the sort of the mutual admiration yeah. that they that they have for each other. Now, there is no question they are as I say, sporting obsessives and they want to beat the hell out of the other. But they go out of the way publicly to praise the other. And there's, there's, um, there's a great line um, from, from Klopp in the piece where he says, Pep is the best coach in the world, but I always want to be the coach of the team who can beat the best team in the world. And actually I achieved that as well somehow and now we have to make sure Sunday is the day. And that's Klopp's competitive edge coming out. He knows that people talk about Guardiola as the best coach in the world. Guardiola, I, I was even just looking at simple things. Pep gets paid 18.7 million, 18 million, Klopp gets 16 million. And for guys, it's not the money, it's the ego of being the, yeah, the of highest course. paid. Yeah, yeah. Um, Pep has won eight major trophies, Klopp five if you include the World Club. Um, which is the greater achievement? I would argue with what Klopp came into, that that's a greater achievement. I note... Um, and his budget. Yeah. His, his budget. Now, 
Liverpool can do that poor mouth thing. They're one of the seven uh, wealthiest yeah, clubs in the world. But I get that they don't have City's endless, yeah, bottomless yeah, pockets. Yeah. So yeah. you'd have to think that like Klopp is the better manager. I, I, I see Deep Marhaman today said he doesn't get the hype over Guardiola. No, I, I, didn't I, even, I, I didn't even read it, to be I, honest. I, I, saw I, I wasn't bothered reading said, it. Yeah. I just said, that's, that's seeking a headline. Now, I suppose the one sort of flaw on an otherwise spotless resume is that Guardiola hasn't won a Champions League without Messi. He went to a Bayern Munich team that had just won the Champions Everything League. Everything been given to him. Everything given to yeah. him. Three years at Bayern Munich, couldn't do it. He has and, and, he has tinkered with his team tactically. Well, well strange European decisions nights. like Rodri last year in the final. I like just uh, overthinking it. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I mean, I I think we'll talk later. Paul Kimmich's piece about uh, a piece about Rory McIlroy, where he talks about perhaps caring too much. Yeah, and I think Klopp's obsession is with Europe. If you if you are rather Guardiola, if you gave Guardiola a choice today of Champions League or league. I think he would definitely take Champions League. Of course he would, because he's done everything else. And I think Klopp will be the other way around. Yeah, and interesting, even on that, like uh, Jason Burton, the Sun Independent, he'd like to manage the Salisa one day. So he wants to manage Brazil. That's a legacy thing. That is, you know, my footprint on world football, like in 100 years' time. They look back, I was the coach of the best club football side in the world, Barcelona. And I I came outside of Brazil to, you know, the renaissance of Brazilian football was under my watch. There's a bit of that in Guardiola. The high achievers are facilitated by having big egos. Let's not beat about the bush of that. Guardiola knows he's very good and wants to be remembered as somebody who shaped and changed yeah. the game. Yeah, yeah. completely. Yeah. yeah. That is it that you can make the you can make poor decisions in your ego. That's the only thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the yeah. And that's probably what's happened to him in big European Absolutely. nights. Absolutely. Completely. Another thing about this game is it's different, say, to an Arsenal Man United, and this is like Jason Bird again. Normally, in this kind of situation, a manager you'll use other tricks to try and gain an advantage. Certainly, Alex Ferguson and Jose Mourinho would not have thought twice about attempting to needle a rival, trying to find a weakness, and to see if that made a difference. Neither Guardiola nor Klopp has done that. Guardiola genuinely enjoys the race, even if he's been stunned by Liverpool's relentlessness. Klopp has caused irritation by talking about the differences in finances, but he's never gone after Guardiola itself and himself. It's almost like the quality is the most important thing here. Not the pantomime it's funny you do get yeah you, you do get different types of competitors some some like from my years some 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 people that you would be competing you know, they want to be your friend they want to like they want to almost say I, I want to give them an excuse to, to, to motivate them in training or you know that, that type of way and some people will try to undermine you and kind of get it under your skin to be, to, to be honest you know, I don't know which is the best style, but these guys seem to respect each other. They certainly don't want to give them anything to go into the changing room and say, "Listen, we got to get these guys because look what they're saying about us." So, I think there's, yeah, I th- yeah, I think that's the probably the way I'd go. And uh, yeah, they're, they're certainly not going to throw fuel onto the fire and give any any each other motivation to to beat them. The what happens on the pitch is what consumes them. Yeah. The uh, it's performance art for both men. I think. Um, I think Klopp is probably slightly more pragmatic manager. I think Guardiola is absolutely obsessed with his vision of perfection. But the what happens off the pitch? Now, we've seen them both. They can throw the head when they need to and they will fight the cause. But they are not, they're not into the pantomime, as you call it. I mean, the Ferguson-Wenger-Keane-Vieira rivalry was largely defined by mutual loathing. That's certainly not the case here. No, no. You guys miss it. The journalists miss it. You like you like the, the bit of. Needle, I, don't, I don't. I don't miss it. Actually, I don't no, miss it. Do you not really, John? I, I, I didn't. Do you like, like as a Spurs fan, I didn't. I didn't enjoy the Jose. I, I thought at the time, well, we, we, it's a chance for Jose to redeem himself, but it then just became tiresome. I, I think it can become tiresome, and I think 
if the Almost football staged. It, yeah, and if if the stuff that's going on on the pitch were boring, you might say, well, we miss the colourful, charismatic personality and the sort of disputes. But these are colourful, charismatic personalities. They're just completely obsessed with what happens on the pitch. And we've never, ever seen football like this. Four of the, high, the four highest totals in Premier League history, uh, in points totals, have come on their watch in the, last, in the last three, four years. Even Alex Ferguson, when he held the Premier League in a voice grip, the highest points total he got, 91. City have had 198 and Liverpool have had 99 and 97, I think. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. They've, they've eliminated the margin for error, which is why I think a decisive result rather than a draw today, I think will determine who, who are champions. I know they both have seven games left and I know there's opportunities for them to slip up. But these two teams are averaging 2.3 points per game since the summer of 2018. Jeez. I mean, it's it's but that's where the focus is. The focus is now on what, like, for example, Jonathan Wilson writes, who wins the battle to curb Foden or Alexander-Arnold will be decisive rather than Alex Ferguson getting under the skin of Kevin Keegan. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah, exactly. things are different now. Things, yeah, things have yeah. changed and it's, it's the margins, it's the minutiae, it's the, the moneyball people. Yeah. That's what this game is about today rather than, well, um, we had a rousing halftime speech and it made all the difference. Yeah, the, the managers need to get out of the way of the football and that's what's certainly happening. Um, what's your prediction? I've changed my mind numerous times. I, to contradict the statistics, Liverpool and Manchester City have the two best defensive records in Europe's top five leagues. So on that basis, it should be a scoreless draw. But I think something similar to the two all that when they last met, Liverpool have momentum. I have a marginal fancy for City. <laughs> right, well, uh, you'll never walk alone. I have to go for Liverpool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm afraid. Don't forget Terrified. it's going to be an awful afternoon. Don't forget it's live and off the ball here from half four with Stephen Doyle and Brian Kerr on full commentary exclusively here on this station on off the ball. Uh, in the Daily Mail, Oliver Hulse article, uh, Man United are riding from the head down and however good Eric Ten Hag is, he'll not be able to change the fact that the Glazer family own the club and drive absurd short-term commercial decisions like the signing of Cristiano Ronaldo. So Man United City are their neighbours, Liverpool are their biggest rivals. It's... It's the other side of the coin for them, isn't it? When you're talking about De Gea, talking about the disgrace against Everton, when you've Ronaldo um, slapping the phone out of a hand of a youngster, which he apologised for on Instagram yesterday. They're a club that, are, to me, they look light years away from, from challenging for a title at the moment. You, you think it can't get any worse, and then the next week it gets worse. <laughs> it, it is just this slippery slope they're on. There's a couple of great lines in Oliver Hull's piece um, where he's talking about... Um, the problem with Eric Ten Hag becoming the new United manager is not Eric Ten Hag. The problem is Manchester United. And he said he's a highly functioning manager who appears to be about, about to be parachuted into a highly dysfunctional club. And he wonders who the manager will answer to. And one of the questions he asks, is it Richard Arnold, the newly installed chief executive, who has been known to measure the success of club signings and where do they trend on Twitter? Mm. And there's this ongoing thing about have United just become this commercial Goliath for whom football is almost a secondary consideration behind their noodle sponsors or whatever. Um, it's, it's just hard to see a way out for them in the short term. There's so much has to change. Guardiola, before he came to Manchester City, made sure that the people from Barcelona he had worked for were there before him and had put everything in place to make it a study in efficiency where this is a study in chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just have to, I, I can't say anything about Man United because I'll get in trouble because <laughs> of so many, so many mates that, uh, 
that followed him. But yeah, it's, it seems to be unraveling, and it seems to get worse and worse and worse. And Gary Neville. Well, watch, uh, watch him. He's like he well, wants. Well, he wants to restructure the whole thing. That's an interesting point you make there because the industry of ex pros gets on my nerves. Like Gary Neville, Ferdinand, Skulls. It's the constant chaos and soap opera. Every they're adding to it, John. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, and I just you don't get that now from Liverpool or City. And I don't know if Liverpool were in the nineties, would you have that from a Liverpool perspective? Maybe you would. Uh, the ex pros, but I, I just think it feeds into the narrative that. This is, as you say, one week away from disaster. So um, I don't know if Ten Hag knows what he's getting into, but this is the big leagues. It's not Ajax. Ajax are the will best they, run club in the Netherlands. Yeah. Uh, he plays lovely football, but this is red top scrutiny. It's global brand. And I don't know. I don't know if he's a man. You know, that you always hear about the health service when people talk about the state and the dysfunction of the health service, that if you could stop and build it all again. But unfortunately, you need you need the health service moving all the time, so you can't start again. United are quite similar to that. You'd love to be able to shut the place down for three years and go and start again. But you can't just say, right, we're getting rid of 20 players and we'll, we'll have a new coaching structure overnight. It doesn't happen. It happens organically over a number of years if you have the right structures in place. But bringing back Ronaldo, I know he scored lots of goals. I think he's got 18 goals. It was, and he's stylish. Uh-uh outlook that they had has completely changed to facilitate the way he plays. Pogba is a basket case at United. He's fantastic with France. Um, The arrival of Ronaldo has set Fernandes, who looked like the best player in the Premier League, completely back. They don't seem to know what they're doing from day to day. Sammy McElroy is a former United player and uh, probably the best interview I've read today was in the Sunday Independent, Tommy mm-hmm. Conlon and, and Sammy McElroy. Um, just talking about Ron Atkinson and the rejection from the club that he was signed by Matt Busby as the very last signing of, of Matt Busby before he went upstairs at United in the early 70s. He was still only 27 when Atkinson showed him the door that day in his office. I was at the time United's longest serving player. He writes, the thought of leaving made me feel physically sick. And I don't think I've ever truly acknowledged how deeply I felt that or for how long I was emotionally preparing for the sorrow until I made the decision to write it here. It was a feeling that impacted every single aspect of my life. I loved Manchester United. It was my identity. And I think that, Niall, being able to separate your identity and your obsession by what you do from life sometimes can be a difficult challenge for any sports person. It's it's really difficult. It becomes your identity. It becomes your calling card and and people see you through that light. And to, to... to have that taken away from you, especially from somebody else, is a very, very difficult thing. And and there's also a lot of shame in that as well, you know, the kind of way that you weren't good enough. Um, but again, it is your identity. You walk around with, with pride and you walk tall because you have these, because you're an United player or whatever it is, and uh, and or world champion or whatever it is. And uh, yeah, to have it ripped away is, is really, really difficult. And by somebody else, it's horrific, yeah. yeah. I've, I've spoke to a lot of Gaelic footballers and hurlers who I'd be quite friendly with and even in an amateur context where they were working nine to five or whatever, they still found a huge void in their life. And if something not only defines you, but takes up so many hours in the week and shapes, you shape your life around your pursuit of the game and then to suddenly be left without it, it sort of, it strips you naked and you go out into the real world. I know you've spoke before about the things you get away with as an elite athlete that suddenly when you stop, you can't get away with anymore. And you have to, you have to queue like everybody else. You have to live like everybody else. Um, Tommy Conlon did the piece with Sammy McElroy, and I agree with you. I think it's, I think it's the best read in the papers today. Um, there's one wonderful line in it, and uh, Ron Atkinson 
got rid of him, told him, and he'd only he got out of a sunbed that he held in his office <laughs> in, in United, and he's wearing a red dressing gown with sweat dripping from his brow. And Tommy has a wonderful line because McElroy was uh, Matt Busby's last signing at United, and he said he was signed by a man born in the time of a horse and cart and fired by a man on a sunbed. I thought, was, <laughs> I thought it was wonderful. It's, a car, it's, like, some, it's, it's yeah. like Biff Tannen, isn't yeah. it? You know, it's, uh, it's like Donald Trumpian. You know? it, it's very Trumpian. Yeah, yeah, it? it's, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it was big run, but obviously he, you know, he, he won a couple of cups, but he wasn't ultimately successful where he needed to be in the league. And he was then sacked for Ferguson, so it was interesting to see. Uh, Jim Goodwin, uh, there was an interesting piece with him in the Sunday Times that Paul Rowan did, just about uh, getting advice from Alex Ferguson. I think he made one appearance for Ireland. Uh, but the, the one the one thing about it, it was uh, like Aberdeen now, Jim Goodwin, who was that same era, and about Jamie McGrath. Jamie's not a player to shy away from pressure, believe me. He took a decision to go to Wigan, which I actually advised him not to do at the time. The option to go to Aberdeen was a far better one for him because it was a bigger club, presumably with better players around him. He knew the league well. I know what League One is in England is like. I spent seven or eight years playing down there. It doesn't suit players of Jamie's qualities all the time. So interesting stuff from Jim Goodwin there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Um, I. I didn't know a huge amount about Jim. Um, I read the piece I was very interested in. It's, it's been some couple of weeks for Waterford, hasn't it, in terms of sport? I, Jim is uh, from Tremor, and he was talking about uh, Alex Ferguson phoned him with the Aberdeen link, and he was saying he had done his due diligence. He'd got on to John O'Shea, fellow Waterford man. But the Waterford story at the moment with the Bromhead winning the, uh, the Gold Cup, with the Waterford Hurlers winning the league, Seamus Power getting to the Masters, and... Goodwin really seems like a guy on an upward trajectory in management. Yeah, blaz all round. Yeah, absolutely. Did <laughs> <laughs> you serve them in the in the clubhouse? John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until seven. Remember, he got full commentary of Liverpool against Manchester City from the Etihad Stadium at half four. We're continuing the Sunday paper review with the Sunday World Sports writer Roy Curtis and the former Irish Olympian rower Niall O'Toole. You can listen on News Talk, also watch us on the digital and social channels for Periscope and Twitter at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. The Masters, Roy. This has been one of the weeks of the year already. Um, Scotty Scheffler and Cameron Smith battling it out for the green jacket tonight. Uh, the Irish lads uh, and are always interesting. And I think Paul Kimmage, who's over there, steals the show again today, in a way, in the writing. Yeah, he has a really interesting piece um, that takes in Rory's relationship with Augusta and his pursuit of the Grand Slam. Um, and he has, um, he has a couple of wonderful lines from the Sixth Sense movie that he, that he starts the police with. Um, and he talks about, I, I see dead bodies, uh, is this line that uh, Ronan Flood imparted to him, Porrick's caddy, about Rory's walks around Augusta. There are so many demons from 2011, obviously, when it looked like he was going to go ahead and win. And the, he goes into a sort of a, a deep dig on, on Rory. And is it that he cares too much? Is it that the past haunts him? Um, I, I, I find some of the stuff about Rory really, really interesting. I mean, we view him through an entirely different prism than I would say any other Irish sportsman. I mean, Shane Lowry is beloved in this country, and rightly so. He's regarded as a national treasure. He's won five tournaments. Rory's won 32. Seamus Power, we made a huge thing, and rightly so. Again, it's a wonderful story about him playing in his first major at 35. Rory had won four majors by 25. Um, he's won two of his last 20 tournaments. He's more majors than the top six in the world combined. The current top six. And yet, and yet, and yet, there is no doubt if he stopped tomorrow, he'd be a Hall of Famer. There's no doubt if he stopped t- tomorrow, he'd be utterly disappointed in himself, I think. He 
creates this persona, I think, that says golf doesn't matter that deeply to me. I care incredibly when I'm out there, but once I walk away, I'm happy with what I do. And I think you, you'd answer this better than me, but I think he's trying to convince himself. He's trying to present an art. He's trying to hide the truth yeah. of what he feels because I think he cares deeply. I think he carries a huge amount of expectation and weight on the shoulders and it's, it's, that's very, very clear to see. Is that the, almost the drawback of insane talent? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's that, it's that weight of expectation. He feels that he needs to win this, uh, 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 the Masters and unless he does that, it's, it's, it, his career will mean nothing to him. That's really what I feel. And yeah, I mean, once you're playing with that level of expectation on your shoulders it's it's very very difficult to really be at your at your optimum i mean you need to be in to be at your optimum you need to be in this state of relaxed focused attention so you need to be relaxed you need to be atten showing attention to the, the, the small little details that um, make you execute perfection and and if you have even a small doubt in your head that you're not going to uh, to deploy your your your, your goose, you know, kind of way. And I think, again, I love Paul. He's he's a great writer. And sometimes he hops from one thing to the other, and it's, it's confusing because I'm not wouldn't be great on the books, you know, that kind of way myself. But he he shoots from one thing to the other. But I love this whole. Uh, I see dead people. It's a really really good analogy. And I think the Augusta you go when you play the same course every year, and you must you must have a sense, okay, I made a bag of that, I'm going to probably do it the same again. Greg Norman, another yeah. example of it. Yeah. Um, quoting here about Ronan Flood, he'd made the game look easy all week, this is in 2011, McElroy, and turned the Masters into procession. Now the whole world was looking at him, we'd never seen that shot on TV before, this is the 10th, and he was embarrassed. Yeah. Yes, embarrassed. It's a really interesting line, isn't it? You know, the notion, I'm making a fool of myself and relative to my ability, what I'm doing on the biggest stage in the world. I think that's really fascinating. Rory, um, one of Rory's problems, almost, is that he's a very rounded individual. He's a palpably decent human being. Who he's an open book in terms of when he talks to people, he'll be fairly candid about stuff. I'm slightly contradicting what I said about him hiding part of himself, but he's, he considers, he'll talk. I mean, he was the first guy to come out and talk about Mickelson in a really, really strong way. He took down, way he took down, this he took down yeah, the Saudi. Saudi yeah, yeah. In the same way they said Gary Neville's yeah. stuff took down the Super League. That was yeah. the moment, that yeah. intervention. If you compare him with Tiger, Tiger's Machiavellian, ruthless. Tiger would shoot you if you were in his way of getting to where he needs to get. Tiger in a press conference, game face on, tells you nothing. But, but, but better now, though. There's more Slightly humanity. Better. There's it, more humanity well, now. I, I, I think the, pe the, the reason people are relating to Tiger now is they're seeing a human side, they're seeing the vulnerable side. Mm -hmm. But that came out through, through events that happened to him. But still, you would have heard John Ram's comments during the week. Yeah, but Justin Thomas, yeah. And, and John Ram was saying that mm. he, he went to Tiger and looked for a few clues about how to play Augusta. Tiger was giving him nothing. And he saw him as a competitor. If you went to Rory, and did the same. There's I maybe there's a bit of respect in that then, maybe from there, Tiger there is, to, yeah. to, to John. That's interesting to John. Why, no, why, why, I mean, why is it then that we we're not loving Rory as much as maybe we do? Is it, is it an underdog thing in this country? Is it the fact that you know he just maybe is from the north or you know? I, I think it is. It definitely is. And he declared late and all of that yeah. stuff. You know, it, I, I I had no issue at all with him with his Olympics declaration. Yeah. If you don't feel Irish, you can't be forced to feel Irish. He feels he feels more British than Irish, I think was his uh, Well, at the time, and maybe and now... He's, he's rolled back yeah. on that. Well, and maybe he's, now, well, he's, changed, he's evolved as a human well, being, yeah, as and we and all and do. And he competed yeah, yeah. for Ireland uh, at the Olympics there in Tokyo. We are, we are harder on him, and I include mm -hmm. myself in this, we are harder on him than anybody. When Harrington won in Carnoustie, 
I was a nervous wreck. I was so invested in what he did. When Lowry won in Port Rush, I felt like I'd won the Open. I was so mm, euphoric. Yeah, yeah, same here. Rory stuff has never made that emotional connection with me. And maybe it's because he's from the North and maybe we almost view the North as a different place. And that would be my prejudice. We do. And I accept that entirely. But he Certainly doesn't, our generation, he doesn't anyway. touch me even though he's a genius, even though he's a decent guy, even though he's one of the three or four greatest Irish sports people of all time, he doesn't get me in the same way. No, I would agree. I would agree. It's the same. We don't have that emotional connection with him. And it, I mean, we're, maybe it's that sectarian thing. I don't know. It's terrible. Well, I don't know if it's that. Yeah. Um, but but. Uh, that might come, though. That, that might come. Like, if he does win the Masters, that might come. You know, that, yeah, that yeah. Uh, it's changed with Tiger. Like, people have short memories, I think, when it comes to Tiger Woods and sort of some of the things he's done in his life. Um, whereas the moment, the, the, the people now at Augusta, my sister's there this week, it's all about Tiger Woods. It's just... It always it, has been, hasn't it? No, but, no, but in a different way, I feel now. It was... People were just there was an aura about how he played the game. Mm-hmm. Now it's about oh, this is our guy. This is yeah, this is yeah. the this is the man. This that is fallen hero that the Americans love. That the guy coming back from. I mean, when Mickelson comes back now, they're going to revere yeah. Mickelson. Like, yeah. They'll forget about the Saudi comments that he Absolutely. made. They forget about what he tried to they do in terms to of leveraging back, yeah. the PGA Tour against the Saudi League. When Mickelson comes back, when the, if there's contrition, yeah. they're going to lap it up. But the, the, they love it. Yeah. The Tiger story. There's so many dimensions to it, and they're all really extraordinary. I think from a guy who was propelled by the need to win his father's approval and who measured his self-esteem by the amount of majors he won and would always quote the numbers. Um, to the guy, I mean, that, that thing you say about it replacing one addiction with another, and you could see that with Tiger on and off the course. Mm-hmm. He could never let go publicly, but when he did, he let go to excess, and there was no question about that. But the guy's competitive will, the capacity to come back from what he's endured, you may, mm. you could, there are all the morality parables that you can present about Tiger, and there's no question he's an imperfect individual, as, as we all are. Us, as, as many are, yeah, I was I just going to say, have. as many of us yeah. are. And, but what he has done, I mean, to come back, this guy shot across a road in a 4x4 going twice the speed limit, um, was speared off the highway, lucky not to die, was told by surgeons he would lose, potentially lose a leg. He spends three months in hospital and um, not getting out of a bed and here he is nine months later two in, in his first competitive round in two years i thought thursday night's round that's 71 is one of the great sporting achievements i've ever seen mm. and i don't think it really mattered what he did after that because to be able to come back and make the cut bryson the shambo misses the cut jander chauflay misses the cut and um, really top players jordan speed misses the cut what he's done is phenomenal. I mean, can you imagine you're coming back yeah. um, from that sort of injury and being immediately competitive? It's extraordinary. I mean, there's, there's like that famous quote, like, uh, fear, it can burn your house down or it can cook your dinner. And uh, it literally, fear cooks <laughs> cooks uh, Tiger's dinner and it, you know, it burns everybody else's house down. Did he's it an cook your dinner? It definitely did, and I also burnt a lot of houses down over the time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just what happens, you know. Like in a way, it can drive you. Yeah, yeah, it can drive you, or it can actually it can uh, it can put, pick you apart, and you need to control that. You need to you need to understand that and control it. And uh, and what happens at the start of a week, say for instance in in Augusta, and certainly in, at many World Championships that I I was involved in, and uh, and good ones and bad ones. 
it starts off with little embers at the start of the week and then it becomes a raging fire for no apparent reason because you couldn't control it at the early point so that's what and that's what happens and it just builds and builds and builds and I think it's like I don't know how like Rowing is binary and, 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 and all those endure, all the endurance science, you, you do the work and you kind of, it's maths, it's maths, you know, and, and, but I can't imagine what it's like to, to go when there's so much luck involved as well here, you know, that kind of way, the like that, that when, when Tiger hit that branch in, 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 in 19 uh, and, you know, won it by one shot, I mean, that's incredible. Like, how does that impact you when you're praying? Because you have a bit of bad luck and you're also thinking, well, I'm having bad luck, but he's also having a bit of good luck, you know, that kind of way. So these are the things that really play in your mind. I can imagine as a golf, I rarely play the game, but uh, yeah. It's, but as a competitor, it's, as, a, it's, as an it's, athlete. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just to be able to cope with that level of un- unsurety and, uh, and staying in control all week is, must be very, very difficult. The nature of obsession, I mean, we talked about Pep, we talked about Tiger. I mean, rowing is one of the great examples I've seen of obsession, where there aren't really great material rewards. One of one of the best books, sports books I've ever read, is Boys in the Boat. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, amazing. Daniel yeah. James Brown. Um, ostensibly, it's about uh, an American crew seeking to go to Hitler's Olympics, Berlin, in 1936 and win. But what it really reveals is how rowers just sacrifice everything. The physical demands. I mean, you're out on the water. I see you cycling up as a young fella and he's gone off rowing again, that lunatic. Yeah. Um, but we see that increasingly with a lot of sportsmen, just utterly consumed. And it's being able to switch off sometimes, I think, is almost as important Absolutely. as... Absolutely. I mean, we, you, you do need that balance. I think you get that balance as you get older. I mean, from the point of view, when you're, when you're a young athlete, you feel, okay, I, I have no space for anything else. I need to do this. I need to succeed more than I can need to breed. And that's what you have to be in the early stages. And then you start getting results and then you get more balance as you go off to, to your later career. But again, yeah, it's, it's, you need to be obsessed. And uh, yeah, I can't imagine what it's like to be a golfer and just, and just having those lucky, unlucky shots going uh, left and right. That's must be difficult. 53106 is Roy Curtis and Niall O'Toole on the Sunday papers. Uh, I think if McElroy is at seven or eight majors winning the Masters or not wouldn't matter, but he's stuck in four majors for eight years now, says Michal and Kerry. And Rory's his own worst enemy when it comes to the Masters. He's so self-aware on the Masters stage rather than trying to adopt a relaxed approach with his gameplay. A top, top player, but professionally unfulfilled, says Ken Curran. Um, Shane Larry, the whole team, I think, of Paul Kimmich's piece was that some players wanted too much. I feel that Shane Larry wanted too much there this week as well. Yeah, I um, I had sent out a tweet last night talking about Shane Lowry being the soundest man and the guy you'd most want to go for a pint with. Actually, myself and Vincent Hogan went for a few pints with him before Christmas and he's such engaging company. And then he has the blow-in with Bo on the 13th when, when the wedge, the wrong yardage, and that sort of manifests, that desire to win there. He has really put pressure on himself to succeed. And he gave his interview afterwards and he was really down. It was almost like he built himself up so much. I'm competing here. I'm in the mix. He said he was playing the best golf of his career. And then he was three over for the back nine. And again, I'm fascinated by, by elite athletes and the mindset. It's very similar to Rory stepping into the back nine in 2011 Mm. and imploding. Um, And when you care that much, can it be a barrier to performance? And that's the thing. I think from, from the, point of view the, the best way to do it and, and I got better at this as, as my career went on is to take the result off the table is, is stop thinking about when I'm going to win or going to lose 
and and really focus on those moments of execution. That's really when you're when when you're when you're at your top level. Once you once you start playing, what am I going to do when I win, or what what happens if I don't make this shot, or what happens? Who, what are people going to think? Blah blah blah. Once you distract yourself by thinking outside of those moments of perfect execution, you're lost. And I think, yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's that's where you need to be. You need to be in those moments. And if you think about losing or think about winning, it's over. And I think that's probably what Shane is probably having that difficulty. In, in your sport, when you're competing, there's maximum physical exertion constantly. In golf, you have so much time between the shots. It's more mental, maximum right, mental yeah. exertion. I think that's I think that's the thing. It's 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 not it's not that you know, when you're in those moments of 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 perfection, executing the perfect shot, it's it's the stuff that you do in between shots and how you want to pick yourself in those moments and staying in control, staying neutral. I mean, you need to be neutral. You need to be calm and neutral to really, and and again, not playing with fear, not playing with too much expectation and being in those moments of perfect execution. And that's where you are. And I think once you start thinking about your legacy, once you start thinking about where I am, like what a lot of people think or what happens if I don't win, like from Rory's point of view, he's probably, what happens what will people think if I don't win the, the Masters? Um, you're lost. It's over already. Well, it's interesting that Rory, uh, sorry, Shane then three-putted the 13th. So it wasn't out of his head. The shot was still in his head when he was putting and then made a bogey on the easiest hole in the course. You could see that he, had, he had lost that focus that sportsmen talk about so much, that tunnel, that zone. He had exited it. In the it, flow, yeah. It was, it was one of the things I used to love. Parry Carrington, is, he might be my favourite sportsman of all time. But I used to love when the eyes came on. The stare, yeah. The stare. He was in that zone. And watching him, in Car- not so much in Carnoustie, actually, because he almost blew it in Carnoustie. PGA was the one I remember. PGA and that, that final round in Burkdale, when he hit that uh, shot, that shot into the par five, the 16th, um, from 270 yards, whatever it was. And he just went walking after it. And you just knew this guy is in a yeah. different place now at the moment. He is touching perfection. Nothing can get near him. And then when he went the next month and won the PGA, you just realised when you get into that period, that intense period of high achievement, Scotty Scheffler's in it now. Cameron Smith yeah. is back in it. Maybe was out of it for a while on Friday, but back yeah. in it. Yeah, I think it's it, once you get into that, into that flow and you need to find that flow and again, free yourself of any expectation. And uh, yeah, stay in those moments of execution and stay neutral in those, you know, walking from one tee to the next and that's where you need to be. How do you see it's nice, Cameron Smith versus Scotty Scheffler? I think Scheffler's poise I find remarkable for a guy who'd never won in his first 70, 71 outings, wasn't it? Mm. Um, his, his calm for a 25-year-old, I thought when he hit that Aaron T shot in 18, I thought this is the moment that will measure who Scotty Scheffler is. And he had the poise to not only execute a brilliant approach to 18, but also to challenge the rules official who told him that he couldn't clear pine leaves or pine straw, you could only clear leaves. And he's, he said, what's the difference between the two? And was eventually able to move them and give himself a clean lie for his drop. Just in that moment when your mind should be frazzled. I know, I know. I, 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 thought, it was, I thought it was remarkable. And he hit, I, I would say that that shot he hit into 18 was probably his best shot of the day in the circumstances when suddenly the doubt would be, f- I, I certainly, we talked about Rory being embarrassed in 2011. I would be absolutely frazzled saying, have I blown everything here? All three days of work, is it gone in an instant? And I think that's what separates these guys. It was what 
Tiger was brilliant at. He would just mentally destroy his opponents by being able to, when he needed to execute, to just execute. Absolutely relentless. But when you have your, you know, your, your the foot on the, the, the throat of yeah. the opponent and just keep pressing. Yeah, exactly. And just to finish on the Masters, uh, David Walsh, now a moment of brilliance, gets barely a ripple from patrons in the gallery. So he was watching Kevin Na, who was playing with Shane Larry the other day, David Walsh at Augusta. The ball came to rest only four feet from beyond the hole. I stood in the middle of a packed gallery and clapped, but mostly there was a barely a ripple of applause. I confess to thinking, what is it with these people? Around here, they call them patrons. Whatever they are, many are not aficionados of the game. They have no great understanding of golf, little appreciation of its finer points. Somehow, they've been offered the opportunity to come to the Masters and feel it's something they should do. The Masters is more than a golf tournament. Being able to say you've been there works well at dinner parties prawn sandwiches there all around I think (laughs) the the daily passes were selling for fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars last week that's cheap yeah on StubHub that's what they were quoting and expecting it it to go up significantly 10,000 for four days because I was looking at it um, because I'm one of these kind of people these prawn sandwich people in January I can see that (laughs) is there anything look Augusta is a spectacular place it's a botanic wonderland it has a gorgeous history but it's smug self-satisfied aura really is hard to take patrons come on I mean they're fans they're sp- and I really hate the way media the, the, the media all ha- the well, media that, acquiesce because they're afraid well, they won't well, come back well, Gary, they kicked out Gary, Gary McCord, McCord like you, you won your contracts but it, the media almost feel oh well I better say patrons and I even I'm laughing at the TV yeah. last night when I'm hearing them saying patrons but uh, the Open is very much more democratic you yeah. can walk around St Andrews you can play St Andrews Yeah, you know we, I, I kind of like a little bit of tradition I have to say I love tradition you know that kind of way like, like the Henley Royal Regatta where yeah. you have to wear you know you have to wear a blazer and you have to if you're, if you're a lady you have to wear a skirt below the knee and all that stuff I kind of love a bit of tradition yeah, no. you, yeah. I don't want to pay 10, ten grand for, for four days <laughs> look I uh, suppose once a year you wouldn't want it every week you know it's, I, um, it's their rules it's their place it's very southern if you know if yeah, you all know what that means yeah. uh, you know there's, there's a lovely uh, story Philip Quinn who's a friend of this show and who's one of my closest mates he's over there covering it for the first time and they have a draw yeah. of the, the journalists who go and get to play the course on the Monday with the Sunday pins, Sunday tees, essentially you play, and he got drawn out uh, at the weekend, and Quinner is a student of golf, he's, he's on rival knowledge, he's up there with you, and we played, he, he had a landmark Bertie in October, and we were over and we played St Andrews, so he's playing St Andrews and Augusta in the space of, uh, in the space of six months, he would be uh, He'd be a great man to get on the show over the next couple of days to talk about how he, how he gets on. We have Vincent Hogan on the show there and Dermot Galise last week talking about the nerves they felt like being going out there on a Monday and playing Augusta really? National the day after the Masters has been won. So I hope, Phil, uh, has a good night's there. sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just actually speaking before we go to the break. There's a regatta on in Japan, is there? No, no, uh, Italy. Italy, the, sorry, uh, Puerto Rico, Italy. Yeah, so so our, our Olympians are... Had their from Japan, outing. from Japan. Olympians from Japan. Yeah, sorry, our Tokyo Olympians from... Uh, yeah, exactly. I had their first outing in Puerto Rico this weekend loads and loads of medals uh, so it's really it's the start of a, a cycle really and uh, the first showing we got it's it's really none of the Olympi- we, we don't have the double there we don't have to, well we have a we have actually Gary and Finton in a double and uh, the girls are in pairs and stuff like that the, the women's four are in pairs but it's really funny it's like when I was there. I was. I went to Petalugo, My first regatta. We. I was. I was there. As a very, very, very quick story. We were there. Um, I was there in the in, in the late eighties, early nineties as a development na- as a developing nation. So I was paid for in with India and the rest of them. And um, yeah, I fell in twice, and uh, so I never went back. <laughs> Talk about. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> so anyway, yeah. So it's uh, that we've come we've come a long way since then. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy this Sunday afternoon until seven. Remember commentary of Manchester City against Liverpool coming up at half four with Stephen Doyle and Brian Kerr. Biggest game of the world. Now, as well as listening on News Talk, folks, you can uh, watch us on our live streams for Periscope and Twitter at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. Delighted to have in studio the Sunday World Sports writer Roy Curtis and the former Irish World Champion rower and Olympian Niall O'Toole. Nice text in here on five three one zero six. Pete Farrell on Twitter. Roy Curtis is the perfect sporting Sherpa to guide you through the day on the paper reviews. So there you go, Roy. I can, I can barely lift a bottle of Bally gown. Never mind, uh, <laughs> never mind the radio studio. Very good. Ladies Gaelic Football Division 2 final Armagh 9 points Kerry 7. Uh, Camogie Littlewoods Division 4 final Mayo 214 Wicklow 1-6 is a result. Uh, the Division 3 final just getting underway in Kindergarten between Cavan and Wexford and the Donegal and Meath Ladies Football final in Division 1 throws in at Croke Park at 4 o'clock. Brentford nil, West Ham nil in the Premier League. Leicester 2 Crystal Palace nil. Bad result this for Burnley if it goes this way. Norwich one, Burnley nil a car road to the second half just getting underway. Uh, Sean Dye's trying to rally the troops there, but uh, Pierre-Lise Melu with the goal for the Canaries who are going down. Leicester to Crystal Palace now, as I said, the goal's coming from Luckman and uh, Drewsbury Hall there at the King Power. So Crystal Palace, a bit of a setback after the win over Arsenal. St Mirren nil, Rangers for a result from earlier on. In the Women's Six Nations, uh, Scotland 8, France 28 at Scotston. And also in the Champions Cup, Montpellier hammering Harlequins at the moment. It was 26-0 the last we uh, we heard. And the Australian Grand Prix in Melbourne earlier today was won by Charles Leclerc and Ferrari, who's going great guns early on this season. Sergio Perez was second. George Russell was third. Lewis Hamilton was fourth. Max Verstappen retired the world champion. Noble Yates then was a 50-1 winner of the Grand National. Trained in Carlo by Emmett Mullins, ridden by Sam Whaley Cohen on his last ride in the race, the amateur jockey who won the Gold Cup and Long Run back in 2011. Um, jockey's own fairy tale after starring in Royal Romance, uh, writes Sean Ingle in The Observer from Aintree. Until now, Sam Whaley Cohen was best known in the wider world for reportedly getting the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. So uh, William and Kate to rekindle their romance after their split in 2007. The pair tweeted their congratulations after the race. More importantly, uh, the quote here, the 39-year-old who owns a £300 million oral health chain also paid tribute to his brother Thomas, who died in 2004. When you lose somebody you love, you realise you should make the most of life, he said, and also try to put a lot of energy into every day as you don't know if it'll be your last. Good words there from Sam Whitey Cohn. It, it really was. I. It's funny, like you, John, national hunt racing is one of my passions um, and Cheltenham is probably my favourite sporting event of the year. I'm not a big Grand National fan. I'd been far more interested in the Grade Ones that preceded it yesterday. Why not? I don't know. I just think it's it's well. Until recently, it didn't have that many classy horses in it. It was more the glamour that surrounded it of the sort of Beecher's Brook and six seven horses falling, the the fine Avon legend. But it's. I wouldn't be into sort of midweek racing grade five sort of stuff, you know. It's when you get to the elite stuff, grade ones I'm fascinated by, and you can follow the form line of those elite. But at the same time, it throws up extraordinary storylines year after year after year. Like we grew up on the yeah. legend of Red Rum, on Bob Champion and Aldaniti and the cancer recovery. I mean, you had Rachel becoming the first woman to win last year. You had the Tiger Roll story in the couple of years before that. And for a guy, an amateur, to win both the Gold Cup and Grand National, now I know Whaley Cohen has huge resources because of the father. 
And if you, you could pick bones and say he got a nine-day ban for excessive use of the whip and knowing it was his last race, um, but it was, it was heroic what he did. I think the most interesting part of the whole story is Emmett Mullins. I mean, the Mullins family, racing, flat racing particularly, is about bloodlines and, and breeding. Coolmore go out of the way to find the best. The Mullins family, the reach in racing, obviously the, the, the paternal influence of, of Paddy Mullins first, the Don Mull Run trainer, Willie Mullins pushing out the boundaries, his son Patrick, the record for number of amateur wins, Willie's brothers, um, both Mags Mullins, Tony Mullins, uh, and now you have, you have Danny and David. David's won a Grand National, Danny's had a sensational season, and now you have Emmett Mullins coming along. It's, I, I don't know, is there, is there family in Irish sport that have achieved it's a good question much. it's a good question listeners out there 53106 if you want to get in touch that's a bloody good question yeah, I mean they're they're phenomenal are you a racing fan now? Uh, every like of that everybody put a bet on the Grand National all the time so so that from that this is my one race that I would put a bet on every year now we didn't put anything on this year but again it's an amazing story and again the fact that he was retiring or said he was going to retire clearly freedom in a certain way and he just you know he rode with that freedom and again that l no expectation and yeah it was an incredible it was just an incredible story and it seems to do that it seems to always do that I don't know why the Grand National do it Racing even though jump racing has moved away a lot from the Danoli Doran's Pride smaller owners it does throw up marvellous romantic stories doesn't it I mean the, mm -hmm. the Flooring Porter story over the last couple of years at Cheltenham is wonderful and the small guy even though you yeah, have small guy, yeah. you have you have Mullins, Gordon Elliott, Nicky Henderson. Well, Emma Mullins is a small guy he, here. He is, a, he is absolutely a small guy. Porrick Roach had his, had his yeah, winner Brazil, at, yeah. at, at, at Cheltenham. Um, but the thing that I love most about sport are not necessarily the tactics. I love the emotion of sport and how it takes people to a different yeah. plane. That you can just... There are very few things in life that can transport you to a place where you just float on air. And you could see the Whaley Cones yesterday as they came in and the deep bond between father and son, this sort of visceral moment where this is the moment in their lives and we're allowed to be part of that. We have a ringside seat to observe it. I find that, I think great yeah. sport is about the emotion and how it touches people right to the marrow, how, how greatness, how triumph and tragedy find parts of us that very few things can. Yeah, it's, it, 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 it invokes that feel, you know, it makes you feel something that you don't feel anywhere else. And that, you know, you know, watching that, you know, the underdog win or, you know, a, a perfect shot or that, you know, whatever it is, it just invokes something that no, I don't think anything else in life can, can, uh, can invoke. And that's, that's why sport is so amazing. That's interesting because there's 40 runners go out for that. A seven-year-old hasn't won in 82 years. Yeah. Uh, he's 50 to one in the betting. And within 10 minutes, then you have that emotional story. So they didn't know it. Yeah. We didn't know it. Nobody knows. You just go out there. It could be 50 other stories or 40 yeah. other stories, 39 other stories because 40 runners in the race. When you see those 40 horses, I mean, I'm taken every time I go to a race meeting. Jockeys are insane. Yeah, lunatics. I mean, yeah. 40 horses charging at 35 miles an hour. Um, or whatever speeds they reach, jumping over these huge fences. I know the likes of Beaters, they're taking out the drop yeah. on the other side. The injuries they sustain. I mean, Philip Quinn actually did a piece with Davy Russell before Cheltenham. And what Davy had to go through to get back at 40, what's he, 42, is he? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
uh, Ruby has talked about he feel he was happy to get away. Ruby would be another of my all-time sporting heroes, a genius. But they get on these animals and they propel themselves around amongst so many others, knowing that serious injury and tragically, as as we've death, seen yeah. over a number of years, death lurks potentially. I mean, the famous line about who else goes to a work with an ambulance driving yeah. behind them. You know, they're, they're it's right. incredible. But it's back to the theme of the whole pay-per-view. It's obsession, isn't it? It's, mm. We start with Pep, we talk about Tiger, we talk about jockeys, that mm. this is, you know, their whole identity to Sammy McElroy when your identity is taken away. Ab- absolutely. And it's all wired. Yeah, you're wired into that. I think, I think the f- you can imagine, like, all of that emotion, you know, after the race. You have to, like, from my point of view, it's like, the, it's, it's the journey. You can imagine all of the bad times, all the difficulties that they had reaching that point. And that's why the elation is so great. What really crystallizes is, is when you are, when you reach that high level, it's, it's, it's not just the achievement of what just happened, but how you got there and the journey to that point and all the difficult stuff. And that's why the emotion is so great. And that's why you could see it there yesterday. The emotion is so great um, because of all of that stuff that you have to deal with on the journey. A lot of jockeys, particularly in flat racing, where they have to be so light and have to starve themselves, deny themselves any calories. And addiction is a major, major issue. Huge thing. We saw Pat Edry, a great Irish champion, um, died, shriveled away, couldn't be reached by his own family. Um, Alcohol took ownership of him, essentially. We have the current champion, jockey, Ushian Murphy, taking time out, he admits he has to, to deal with issues with addiction. Um, that they are capable of doing what they do. These guys go riding out at stables at 6 a.m., yeah. go on to race in a meeting. Only only last couple of years have they introduced the thing in England, stopping guys riding in two meetings a day in midsummer. They're on the go 18, 20 hours a day. They're not eating. Yeah. Um, yeah, and on, it's and on their adrenaline, on their nerves all the time. So it's adrenaline rushing, rushing, rushing through their body well, all the time. That's it, because I Richard Dunwoody on the show yesterday, yeah. and he had to retire early because of a neck injury in the late nineties. Mm. He won two Grand Nationals, and then he's off to the South Pole, yeah. and Afghanistan, and he just came back from Argentina at the Gaucho Derby. So there must be something in, you know, whether it's an addiction to thrill or just the buzz and the high that you always want to re- recreate that. I think it's that adrenaline. You need to have that kind of. That kind of. Oh, you were training this yeah. morning, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. There's a degree of a fix still. Is that correct? Well, yeah. From my point of view, I have to. I have to exercise. I'm like, 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 or else I start getting jittery, or you know, that kind of way. So I need to. I need. To, <laughs> I need You're to kind of work, jittery in the studio. Uh, yeah, I need to wear myself down. You know, that kind of way because I'm not optimum if I if I if I have it if I'm too much energy. So I try to. Well, yeah. Would you get narky now if you didn't exercise or if there was a day? Yes, I would. Do? I would get narky. Yeah, I would get narky. Food, food, and exercise. If I don't have both of those things, I'm going to get narky. So yeah, I, and it's. It's also um, it's also my point of difference as well. When I trained this morning, I did an hour flat out on the machine, on the wrong machine. And it's my point of difference. It, it, it kind of helps me kind of touch the athlete that I was, even though I've kind of lost that um, in many ways. But it helps me feel like the athlete I was and, um, and to have that kind of, you know, that difficult point in the day to always go to um, is really, really important for me for my mental health and to really, really be, be able to, to press myself in those uh, when I'm working out is really, really important to me. And then I, 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 for that moment, although my numbers are terrible in comparison to what I used to do, for that moment, I'm still on that edge. I'm still on that, you know, surge of adrenaline, you know, pushing, 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 pushing. And it makes me feel great. It, it must be incredibly difficult to know that the 
thing that you were the best in the world at, that's the thing you do best, you can no longer do competitively by the time you're in your mid-30s. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, that's you, you, you start to fall off that cliff, Roy. You start to, the recovery starts to, to leave you. The, the injuries take a lot longer to come back. And, and yeah, I think, uh, you know, your sporting life is incredibly, incredibly short in context of your full life. And you need to think of it um, as, a, as a journey and what it gives to you as a, as a person, as an individual, and how you can leverage those, those skills in other ways in life, yeah. So yeah, it's. Uh, but anyway, yeah. If anybody wants to do rowing class, crew class, it's my business, and yeah. <laughs> there is your plug free. There you go free. There you go. No, okay, yeah. 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 So crew class. This, yeah. This, this guy is called Niall O'Toole. He used to be an Irish Olympian rower. He yeah. was a world champion, and he's on the Sunday pay per view with Roy Curtis as well. There you so go. We, we might as well, well give Roy class, Dublin. We'll, we'll, we'll give Roy Instagram. a plug as well here. We'll give Roy no, please. <laughs> We'll give Roy a plug here because he did an article uh, in, in the Sunday World today about David Clifford. So the Fossa Star initials the checklist for attacking perfection with the authority of a CEO signing off on a multi-billion dollar deal with his Mont Blanc fountain pen, which is my favourite uh, paragraph from it. What is about this guy, Roy, that captivates you? I was a big, big basketball fan and Michael Jordan was my idol. And I was lucky to go and see him many times. I saw him in Madison Square Garden one evening and here he was defying gravity flying through the air, contorting his body, a Nureyev of the skies, doing things that other human beings, mortals can't do. Mm. I see that when I see Clifford. I was in Crow Park last Sunday and I was just mesmerised by the guy. He is on a different level to anybody I've, I've, I've ever seen. There's a, one of the greatest pieces of writing I've ever read was David Foster Wallace, Roger Federer as religious experience. He writes about observing Federer and there's this line from it there are times as you watch the young Swiss play when the jaw drops and eyes protrude and sounds are made that bring spouses in from other rooms to see if you're okay <laughs> I feel like that when it, I felt like that watching watching Clifford last week he can he just takes the game to a different level I spoke earlier about emotion and what it does how sport does that there are certain people you watch Jordan Lionel Messi, Seve at his best, Ali, who are just these titans of charisma, who can do things that take their chosen code to a place it's never been before. I'm sure there mm. are, are, are many rowers, or a few rowers, who've, who've done that. The interesting thing for me about Clifford is the pressure on the guy. He's 23, mm. and he, he's undoubtedly now the best footballer in the country at the moment, on current form and on, and on high achievement. And yet the only measure in Kerry is whether you win All-Irelands. Yeah. And if you look at the guys, Clifford is an amalgam. He has bomber's size and ball-winning ability. He has that uh, lovely liquid grace of a Morris Fitzgerald. Um, he has the vision of Gooch. He finishes like Mikey Sheehy. Mikey Sheehy finished with eight All-Irelands, Gooch with five. Morris Fitzgerald took until his 11th season as a Kerry man in the colours to guide them to the 97 All-Irelands. And he was sort of a, a force of nature. He reached a level of performance against Mayo in the All-Ireland final that had rare, rarely been seen. And there was a huge lifting of a weight from his shoulders. You could see there was this torment. And no amount of leagues are a proxy in, in Kerry for, for winning the championship. And the last decade has been soaked in Dublin blue. And the pressure on Clifford now to lead Kerry to an All-Ireland is immense. But he seems to take it absolutely in his stride. I think Kerry would have won the All-Ireland last year had he not gone off in the semi-final against Tyrone in extra just before extra time, injured. Um, but 
Porrick O'Hara tried to challenge him last week and gave him a bit of verbals. And Clifford just replied, every ball that came in, you were looking at, you were looking at something that you realised this is the game being played as beautifully, as perfectly, a study in aesthetic thrill as it ever has been played. And he scored 1-5 from play and he could have just, he, he just looked like a guy yeah. who could do anything at any moment. So is he the best, best footballer you've seen since anybody? Well, it's very hard to quantify. I, even though I, I grew up on the, the Dublin team in the 70s, Anton O'Toole, the late Anton O'Toole was one of my best pals. And there were some incredible players on that Dublin team and on the Kerry team they faced. I thought Morris Fitzgerald as a stylist took the game to a different level. Um, I thought Dermot Connolly took it on another level. You see guys like Fenton and Kilkenny and James McCarthy, Peter Canavan, all immense players. But Clifford has the potential, if he keeps doing what he's doing for five, six, seven more years. We've seen with Dan Levy how a career can be, can be cut short. Um, but he just does things that are incredible. For a guy of a size to have the technical skills he does is very rare. You normally either have yeah. the power or the smaller guy with yeah. the grace. I know that's a cliche, but Clifford just has it all. And as a dub, and Dublin football is my, is my biggest sporting passion, the team that I feel most invested in and I still was able to watch last week and just be absolutely moved by what this guy was doing. So if you're um, a follower of Dublin football, have you got any sense that they can recover from what has been a quite a pronounced slump now? Yeah, I think, I think there are so many factors at play and I think there's, there's an effort to sort of scapegoat Desi sometimes um, we spoke about managers earlier and obviously Jim Gavin was, is an extraordinary manager and dealt with a group of players, a, a once in a lifetime group of players came along together. You had mm. maybe 10 of the best players to ever play the game on one team. You had subs. Um, we were up in Clonus at the Dublin League game a couple of weeks ago and I was looking at the five subs who came on when Dublin last played Monaghan in a league game that they needed to win. And the subs that came on included Dermot Connolly, Jack McCaffrey, Bernard Brogan, um, Michael Darren McCauley. So there was that depth. So they've lost the greatest manager that they've ever had. They've lost some of the greatest players of all time. There's the natural wear and tear of trying to retain ambition. Does it hugely matter if you win nine All-Irelands if you already have eight? Does it hugely matter if you win six if you have five? And if there's just that 2% dip, and yet, having said all that, if Dublin got out of Leinster, and I think Kildare have a chance in Leinster, mm. if Dublin got out of Leinster, you have exceptional leaders like James McCarthy, you've once-in-a-lifetime footballers like Brian Fenton and Kieran Kilkenny, and if they are suddenly playing Kerry in an All-Ireland semi-final, with all the pressure on Kerry, would Kerry as favourites, Dublin haven't not been favourites for a match in Championship in more than 10 years, you could still see something extraordinary. Uh, I won't say a last sting of the dying wasp, but <laughs> Dublin are, have come back to the pack. The question is, how, how much better have the pack got? And I think that's the examination of Kerry that's intriguing this year, because I think Kerry have five or six forwards who would get into any team in the country. They've improved their defence. Jason Foley and Tyg Morley have filled those two um, central positions in defence. They only conceded one goal from play in the entire league. Dublin conceded 11 goals over the course of the league, not all of them from play. Um, and I think the momentum is with Kerry, and I think they're going to be 
they're going to be very hard to stop if teams don't find a way to stop Clifford. Michael Jordan was double teamed, treble teamed at times, and that's how you stop the Chicago Bulls. It's more difficult to do on a Gaelic football pitch with its dimensions. But I would not begrudge Clifford and all Ireland because we're seeing an artist at work and it's 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 a great privilege to see a master at work. It would be a shame if he didn't. Yeah, a real shame. A bit like Joe Cannon and yeah, yeah, Galway yeah, Hurley. Absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah. Would you have identified with Gaelic players, especially given, you know, there's a degree of similarity between, you know, the rowing, the nature of rowing and the fact that it's like poorly funded what it was back then yeah. and, and Gaelic players being amateurs and yeah, I think, to the day job. Yeah, it's funny. It's really funny. It's it's really funny. I think we we, we would, um, yeah, we, we would identify from, the, from that, certainly from an amateur status. I think um, we rowers would like to think that we train a little bit harder than them. Um, but it's 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 funny that debate that's going on in terms of wages and stuff like that, and 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 whether they're getting looked after because that's really really important that they get looked after. Um, the players get looked after and are paid their expenses and some uh, because obviously the GAA are, are doing very very well. I think um, yeah, I'm a, like I'm a massive massive Dublin fan like 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 Roy, so it's going to be a difficult period for us. I think everybody plays outside out, out of their skin when they're playing the dubs anyway. There is that the level we're going to get into get, get stuck into these guys, and um, yeah, it's going to be. I think it's going to be a little difficult few years. Do you think we might be we might might? Yeah, well, I, I, I think if you look at underage, what's happened over the last couple of years, there's not the same supply chain of of excellence coming through. The fact that both Paul Mannion and Jack McCaffrey uh, stood away in their peak years. McCaffrey, obviously, um, as, a, as a medical doctor. Um, and Paul, who's a guy who went to China for a year and has ambitions to pursue other things. To lose two guys really at the peak of their powers who are just about to become mm. the key leaders in the team, I think, has, has, has set them back. I, I know there was a piece written recently suggesting that their form this year was a stain on the legacy. I think that's utter nonsense. No, I no, think no. what they've achieved is immortal. It's timeless. It's, it's never been done before. They don't owe anybody anything. anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a long chat with Jim Gavin this week. He's involved in the, the Citizens' Assembly now on, on a directly elected Lord Mayor. And I was trying to suggest to him that he should nominate himself because yeah. as, as, a, as a leader and as a sort of uh, a figure you'd march behind. He's not the charismatic guy like like Klopp, but he's so efficient. And as his, you talk to the players and the way they were prepared was yeah. as, as good as any professional Absolutely, team. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, well said. Um, Eamon Sweeney, just to finish, um, one of the things that was interesting about this kind of whole analysis of Waterford and their chancemen All-Ireland, at the other end, this is against Cork, a new hunger for goals has been evident. This was a feature of Cahill's Tipperary under-21 teams who backed eight and two All-Ireland finals. Waterford hit nine in their final two National League games, more than they managed in the entire 2020 or 2021 campaigns. No one is better positioned to take advantage in Waterford if the champions Limerick slip. They're the closest team to Limerick in terms of athleticism and physicality. The Daesh were criticised for taking the champions on physically in last year's semi-final, but any team wishing to dethrone Limerick will have to match them in that respect. I think it is important for Waterford to be this way rather than the way they were in the noughties when they were swashbuckling, they were emotional. We're talking about an emotional, there was a freedom there, but maybe a bit of naive and I think Liam Cattle is bringing a hardness to Waterford that could lead them to the Holy Grail since 1959 they haven't won the All-Ireland Hurling Yeah we're back to that manager and the importance of a manager again Cattle's underage work at Tipperary was towering and Waterford had basically hadn't won a championship game in a couple of years when, when he came in and I think what has been really really important was there was a sort of half expectation when Liam Sheedy went from Tipperary that Cattle would go back to Tip as the sort of the messiah coming home 
but he chose to stick with Galway or with Waterford and I think for the players that was a real resounding vote of confidence and we say we have to repay the loyalty he's shown to us he's refused to go to his own county to stay with us um, that swashbuckling team of the 90s you talk about they were just magical to watch you know Milan and Dan Shanahan Tony Brown, Ken McGrath, they were helmetless guys. You could really relate to them. And that's something that's important as well. And I think there's <laughs> from a market, but like a serious from a marketing <laughs> yeah, point of yeah, view, yeah, that yeah. the G, like if you if you some of the hurlers of the year, if they walk down the street, would people know them? I, that's no. exactly the point, isn't Absolutely, it? You know? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 for safety, we know, but there's, there's 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 something that needs to be done there. I think about like I remember Tony Caddy won the both the young hurler and the hurler of the year. If people had walked down the street in Clare, would you've known? They're not visible. No, you you, know, you don't relate. Yeah, it's incredible, really, when you think about that. I. I I think um, it's very important that these guys are seen in terms of inspiring future generations and it's very hard to relate to whoever brilliant a guy is yeah. if he's sort of behind a face mask and like you could really see how much it mattered to Milan, to Tony Brown, to these guys when, when, when that Waterford team was getting so close, there's, there's the Milan line of I loves me county but that was apparent in how they played. I think the game has become more technical, the coaching has changed. Um, I won't say it's joined the dots because it's, it's, it's at a higher technical level than it ever has been and it's fantastic to watch. And Waterford really in Stephen Bennett, Austin Gleeson and Desi Hutchinson have a trio who are a throwback in the sense that they're musketeerish in the way they swashbuckle still. And I think everyone, we all love a famine being ended and the Mayo one has got huge publicity but 1959 is a hell of a long time um, for a county as big as Waterford. They've had Ballygunner have won the club title this year. They've had great leaders like like Derek McGrath. Now they have now they have Liam Cahill. And I think it could be the fairy tale story of the summer if they went on to win. Limerick looked untouchable last year. Have um, have certainly not showed that form in the league. But we anticipate that they will come forward. They're they're pretty much odds on favourites to win the All Ireland. But Waterford at sort of six to one strike me as a very good bet we got to leave it there been an absolute pleasure Roy Curtis and Nyla too Nyla enjoy Liverpool yes I'm, I'm looking forward to it now it's going to be a great afternoon I'm going to be terrified though it's going to be awesome we're going to win Roy enjoy the Masters I'm looking forward to it I'm looking forward to uh, about 8 hours on the couch watching, watching stuff from <laughs> Liverpool and then Augusta alright lads great to Thanks, have guys. you in Roy Curtis from the Sunday World and the Irish Olympian rower Nyla too